How are y'all doing? Good. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 today. Starting in verse 6. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us so much. We thank you for the mercies that you pour out upon us. Thank you for your grace that we have by faith. Lord, let us hear from you today. Let us hear your word. Let us put it into action. God, we're uh, privileged to come and worship with our brothers and sisters, to lift up your name, to know that you are present here, that we can glorify you, we can extol your praises. Continue to be with us as we get into your word. Holy Spirit, do your work as only you can. Fill us now that we might hear rightly from your word. We pray this with the authority you give us in Jesus. Amen. We're going to continue talking about uh, work today because this is what this uh, section in 2 Thessalonians addresses. And I want to uh, take a look back at the attitude towards work that uh, ended up affecting the early church and had to be weeded out over time. But the ancient Greeks, when you look at uh, Plato and Aristotle, they thought of work as a curse. And some of you might think of work as a curse. But they despised manual labor, and they basically uh, foisted it on the servants and the slaves to do it so that they could have time for what? Philosophy, friendship, civic life. Um, work was beneath them. It was degrading to Greeks that were free to do work. And to labor was below their station in life. Thus, basically all the slaves and servants um, did all the work. This was to free them up to indulge in art, philosophy, uh, sophistry, politics. These were the noble things because these were the efforts of the mind. Work, in terms of efforts of the body, uh, was seen as negative. And th this is where we get some of the dualism uh, from the Greeks that ends up seeping into the early church that the New Testament deals with in parts because it saw the physical as banal 
and mean and lowly and spiritual uh, was elevated and lofty. So you have the physical on one hand, and you have the spiritual on the other. Uh, this kind of thinking was pervasive enough that it found its way even into the minds of people in the early church. And when you start to kind of study it, you see this, this divide between the sacred and the secular. That's really what the, where that comes from, this false divide of the sacred versus the secular, because the ancient and the medieval Christians, they basically merged Greek thought with biblical ideas about work. And they knew and recognized that farmers and artisans contributed to the common good, but just like the Greeks, they believed that contemplation was the highest activity. So even though they respected farming, trade, raising a family, what did they end up exalting? Priests, monks, that was seen as the true devotion to the Lord, the contemplation of divine truth which they called the goal of life. Eusebius, who was a 4th century church father, this is what he wrote. Two ways of life were given by the laws of Christ to his church. So two ways of life, right? The one is above nature and beyond common human living, holy and permanently separate from the common and ordinary life of man. It devotes itself to the service of God alone. Such is the perfect form of the Christian life. Now, what he's talking about is this monastic life that I just mentioned, where one does nothing but uh, contemplate um, basically spiritual things 24 hours a day. On the other hand, he writes, more humble, more human permits men to have minds for farming, for trade, and other secular interests, and a kind of secondary grade of piety is therefore attributed to them. This is that sacred and secular divide, and, and it still exists in some form to this day. Um, this notion of contemplation being superior has led millions of Christians to scorn their own work, even to this day. Martin Luther, centuries later, he comes on the scene, and like no theologian before him, he insists on the dignity and value of all labor. So he, he probably did more uh, than any theologian to break this split between sacred and secular work. And he really empowered all believers to know their work, served humanity, and enjoyed God's full blessing regardless of what the task was. He insisted that the farmer shoveling manure and the maid milking her cow pleased God as much as the minister preaching or praying. One uh, sociologist, Max Weber, wrote somewhat of a well-known book called The Protestant Ethic and Spirit of Capitalism. And he, he essentially argues that it was the Protestants, primarily the Calvinists, but it was the early Protestants, really in, in that line of thinking of Luther, that came along, and because of the work ethic that they had, that they were, hey, God has given us this work, and we're going to work at it as best we can to glorify him with everything we got. That really laid the, the foundation, almost like for Western civilization as it continued on, and, and his argument is ultimately capitalism as we know it today. Work hard, and guess what? Oh, it produces great things. The point was, don't retreat into solitude. Charge ahead 
into the world. And the work ethic that has developed over the last four to five hundred years, really we do owe to those early Protestant reformers who laid the foundation and really called us back to what the Word says about a proper understanding of work. I mean, even today, if you think about it, we, we have two classes of Christians. I mean, we use different terminology, but it's similar concepts, because there's, there's those who do, you know, regular work, and then those who are called into the ministry. And, and that's a false divide. That's not accurate. Think about it just for a moment. Jesus, before he was a preacher, before he was a rabbi, what was he? He was a carpenter. And guess what? He was a carpenter longer than he was a teacher. So here in, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul addresses the issue of work, and he actually addresses it, and we'll look at it. He actually first addresses it back in 1 Thessalonians. So look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because he's already dealt with it in the first book. In verse 9, chapter 4, that's where we'll pick it up. 1 Thessalonians. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And then look what he says. And to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So notice what he says there, though. He says that as we instructed you, as we instructed you, at the end of verse 11. So when he was there in person, he instructed them on this. Now he's seen fit that he has to write them again about the issue that he already instructed them on. Then he repeats it again one chapter later in chapter 5. Look what he says. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, of chapter 5, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Admonish the idle. So in both places here, he is dealing with the same thing that he now visits again in 2 Thessalonians. Since 1 Thessalonians, it, it hasn't gotten any better. I mean, that's why he's addressing it again. And potentially it's gotten worse because he addresses them again. Uh, earlier, it's just a couple verses. Now he spends a pretty lengthy amount dealing with their work ethic, or maybe their lack of work ethic. So he addresses them again at length. Why is, it prop, why is having a proper understanding of work such a big deal? Because guess what? We want to try to do as little as possible. I mean, <clears throat> if we're honest, if our, if our boss will accept uh, X as the amount of work and the quality, well, then what will we turn in most of the time? x we won't turn in x plus y no we're going to turn in x we want to do as little as possible hey if he's happy with that and if that's like a passing, it's, it's kind of like school too if that's like a passing grade like we're good with that so we want to do as little as possible we also want to do it 
as fast as possible. Now, some of us, we got to clock in and clock out each day. You know, your boss expects you to be there for so many hours, but we want to do it as fast as possible. Like, sometimes it's like you finish your work, and it's like, it's, it's sloppy, you know, and I, I always get this picture if I'm starting to hurry too much, it's like, you know, if I, if I hold up like a paper, it's just like stuff is dripping off it, because it's just sloppy, and it's just kind of thrown on, kind of like paint, you know, you put too much paint on something, what happens? It just drips off, right? So we, we, we want to do it as fast as possible, and the bottom line is, sometimes we simply don't want to do it, okay? I mean, if, if you had an option between, if you had, you got 52 weeks in the year, and if you had to divide it up, and your boss was like, hey, how many, I'm going to let you divide up your work between um, X number of weeks of work and X number of weeks of vacation. And you get paid regardless. How are you going to divide that up? I guarantee you it's not going to be 50 and 2. All right? It might be 2 and 50. Okay? But the point is, we, we, we don't want to do it. Okay? And then when we actually do it, we can have wrong motives for doing work. Think about Jesus as, as a carpenter for, for, for a minute. I mean, would, would this have been his approach? As little as possible, as fast as possible? What about God with his creation? I mean, do we get, when we're reading Genesis 1, I mean, do we get the sense that he's like all rushing around trying to get it all done? No. Do we get the idea that he's doing things like haphazardly? Like, oh, sorry, that the sheep wasn't really supposed to look like that. You know? Do we get the picture that he's doing things half-heartedly? Like, no, that's not God. And guess what? That shouldn't be us. Because we're wanting to image God. So we want an attitude towards work that reflects God's attitude towards work. And if we can't see these things, then, then we're missing fundamental truths that God has laid out in his word. And he makes it real clear. Turn back to 2 Thessalonians it couldn't be made any clearer to us when he says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not what? Eat. Why is this the case? Because God commanded us to work. Now, we won't get into it, but some people, I, I do like, I mean, Paul says it, it's scripture, it's accurate, if anyone is not willing to work. Now, some people might be willing, but they can't because of a disability, Right? Some people, as they get older, they have the inability to work. That's almost like a separate uh, sermon. <clears throat> but for the vast majority of people, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That is the command. So we're required to work. We're not just called to work. We're required to work. How important is this command? Well, this takes us back, and we talked about it a little bit last week. It takes us back to the cultural mandate, or what some call the, the dominion mandate. And we fulfill the cultural mandate and the dominion mandate in two ways. And, I, and we're going we're gonna to look at it again. I know we looked at it last week, but it's important enough, and it bears mentioning. So look at Genesis chapter 1. There are some truths in Scripture that are just absolutely vital to developing a biblical worldview in this concept of the cultural mandate is one of them. So in Genesis, we're in Genesis 1. In verse 26, he said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing 
that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there's two aspects to the dominion mandate, or if you want to call it the cultural mandate. Have godly offspring, work. Those are the two things. And what, is, what, is, what do we see? And we saw it last week. What do we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So he gives him his task right there. What, I mean, his task, work and keep the garden. And then what does he do? He creates the woman. Why? Be fruitful and multiply, right? That's the same mandate given to us today. They were the example set before us, real historical example, but the example nonetheless, the paradigmatic couple, they are the paradigm for how God wants his world handled. That command, if you think about it just for a second, like, oh, it's just for Adam and Eve, and then uh, when, when they die, uh, well, uh, yeah, sorry guys, we're not really sure what to do now. No, it was given to them and then to be carried out by their offspring as they're reproducing as they're being fruitful and multiplying, as they're having dominion. You think Adam in and of himself could have dominion over the entire earth? No. But his offspring, yes. So we fulfill what God wants us to do when we're fruitful and multiply. We fulfill what God wants us to do when we work. But here's the thing. God didn't just expect Adam and Eve to have babies and plant trees. They were meant to exercise dominion over all of creation. It's like turning the earth into a showcase of the glory and beauty and majesty of God. And then working it. And then caring for it. All of this occurs, brothers and sisters, before sin enters. Before sin, we work. Now after sin, we continue to work. So we learn something about work here. It's productive. There's a garden to tend. What is it going to do if we tend to it? If we keep it, there's fruit. What's going to happen as we start to subdue the earth? There's going to be production. It's not aimless or useless. It accomplishes things. Even after the fall, look at Genesis chapter 3. What's the curse given to Adam? Notice, the curse links to what he's called to do. Same with Eve. Notice the curse links to what they're called to do. Be fruitful and multiply. What's the curse for Eve? To the woman, verse 16, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Verse 17, Notice the link here, with the ground, with his working. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now notice something. That was given to them, the cultural mandate, before the fall, but does he tell them, no, 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 don't do it. No, it's still in effect, right? 
after sin, it's still in effect. Now, now there's a penalty. It's going to be a little tougher for the woman. It's going to be a little tougher for the man. But they're both still in effect. Still supposed to have godly offspring. Still supposed to work. So notice, verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat. What are you going to eat? Bread. You're going to work, but guess what? That's going to produce something. It still has uh, production value. There's something that will be produced. You shall eat bread. Okay, how long are you supposed to do it? Until you return to the ground, verse 19. You're going to be working for a long time. Our work never ends. Even if we retire, we should still be working in some sense or some fashion. Our work never ends. So we fulfill what God wants us to do when we are fruitful and multiply. That was before sin. That's after sin. So work is is productive. Notice even Paul himself back in 2 Thessalonians. What did he say? Verse 7 at the end, we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. What was his, what was his skill that he had besides being a teacher? Tent making, right? I mean, he worked with his hands. He had a skill that he could use to provide. Now, he, he, he makes it clear here. Um, <clears throat> it was not verse 9 because we did not have that right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. I mean, the gospel's going forth here, and Paul doesn't want anyone saying, well, you know, Paul over there and, and, and the, other, the other apostles with him, like, they're not doing anything. They're just here among us. No, I mean, he just didn't want to give any groundwork or cause for anything like that to be leveled. So what does he say? Hey, we actually had the right to earn the living just from doing that, but we wanted to give you ourselves an example to imitate. And so he works with his hands. So jobs we do should be productive. This means the work we choose should have this goal in mind, that we're, we're accomplishing something. There is meaning and purpose to it. In some way, you're making your slice of the world a little bit better. Maybe that's service to the people. Ultimately, that's probably where most work leads towards. You're serving others. There is, there's a story, a true story, of a concentration camp in Germany. There's all this huge, like, construction, trash and mess, just giant boulders, all sorts of stuff. And one day they took uh, the men from the concentration camp and they made them take it from one side of the camp, it was about, I don't know how long, maybe a quarter mile, and, and transport it all the way to the other side, just all this huge trash and they took it from one side to the other side. I mean, it was a long day. Everyone was exhausted. They woke up the next day. They made him take it back from that side, back to where it originally was. And then the next day, from the original place, back to where it was. There's a message there. You, you might be working, but you're not accomplishing anything. They were trying to demoralize them. So we must work, but we might, might not, we must not just work. We want to do good work. 
Now, not, not good works, which is important, but do good work. And one way, if we want to define, like, what is good work, is we want to define good deeds in a broader sense. And so theologians, when we often talk about, like, good deeds or good works, there's three elements. There's the right motive, love for God. There's the right standard, God's word, and then there's the right goal, the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. So the work we, should, we do should be, should be quality work, and it should have these ideas, these elements in, in mind. What's our motive, ultimately? Love for God. What's the standard by which we're doing it? What guides us? I mean, our boss might be saying something, but what is guiding us ultimately? God's word. And then what is the goal? ultimately the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. So we want to do good work. It should be quality work. Do you think Jesus made wobbly, uneven tables? And just kind of, you know, hit the nails wherever he thought they should go? And the, No. I think he cared about his craft. You should care about your craft. And here's the thing. All work glorifies God. And here's how Luther said it. I, I said it earlier. I'll quote it this time. A dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God. If your job is shoveling manure, then do your best and shovel that manure for the glory of God. That's Luther. Which really, that's just echoing, echoing what 1 Corinthians 10 says. What's it say in verse 31? Whether you eat or drink, or what? Whatever you do, do all, what? For the glory of God. There's a story about motives and, and objectives in work, <clears throat> um, and it's this. One day, a man came upon three stonemasons, and he asked them what they were doing. And the first replied, I am cutting stones. The second said, I'm earning a living. The third answered, I am building a cathedral to the glory of God. The point is that stonemasons, they're not just merely cutting stones or earning money. They're glorifying God through their work. And what's interesting is, <clears throat> there's a gentleman, most people haven't heard of him, his name's Jonathan, Jonathan Bird, and he owns a company a business, and his business is actually to go in. I didn't even know this was the thing until a couple years ago, but I'm sure some of you have heard of this. But his business is to go in and basically buy other businesses that are kind of failing and kind of like revitalize them and then sell the business for a profit. You think, can that really work? Well, yeah, people do it and are pretty successful at it. So Jonathan Bird ends up uh, buying a business in January of 2019, he buys the business, and the business, again, he's looking for things that, I mean, there's probably, there's different criteria. It's, it's kind of potentially going bankrupt. He thinks he can turn them around, and there's the potential for profit, right? So Jonathan Bird, January 2019, one of the businesses he ends up buying with his company, he's got this team, they come in and, and rejuvenate things, uh, was a company that produced ventilators. So that's January 2019. He comes in, and within about a year, he turns that business around. He is at the point of selling it 
come January 2020. And he's looking for a buyer. Well, right then, what hits? Well, COVID, right? January, February. And what is needed most at that time? One of the things? Ventilators. So he's in a position where he's being asked to produce ventilators. Now, the company that he bought and the place that he got it to on a really good year could produce maybe, over the course of a year, 400 ventilators. And he was being asked to produce 40,000 ventilators. And so he had a decision to make because he was at the point where he could sell it and be pretty profitable. He could instead basically risk everything because he's going to try to somehow produce tens of thousands of ventilators in less than six months. And he contemplated it and realized that the work and the position he had been given was an opportunity to basically love his neighbor. So he was able to get uh, a small auto uh, manufacturing plant that had just closed down and went full scale, um, put himself in a vulnerable position financially, but within six months was able to produce 40,000 ventilators that went across the world and obviously some in the U.S. You know, sometimes the Lord puts us in positions. Actually, I'll say the Lord always puts us in positions to make a difference. Sometimes we get opportunities and we want to make sure we seize those opportunities. They might be small. They might be big. We seize the ones the Lord puts in front of us. The Lord gives us an opportunity we seize that opportunity. We make a difference in the sphere he's placed us in. Now, each of us, each of us has giftings. Now, I'd put that as a subset of work, but we have giftings. We have talents and we have giftings, and I'd actually separate the two. Talents, I mean, we got some amazing uh, piano players on our worship team. Those, they've been talented with that, right? But when I think of giftings, I think more specifically of spiritual gifts that the Lord gives to us that are saved. And so we're, we're gifted with different spiritual gifts. And something that I have tried to commit to before the Lord, because whatever, I'm kind of going back to this idea of the Lord puts us in positions to make a difference. And we should seize the opportunities that he puts in front of us because we want to make a difference for him. Ultimately, is it about us? No, it's about him. And if the Lord has given us opportunities, uh, um, I think we should look to take those opportunities. So something that I've done with the gifting that I've received is I've tried to commit that if I get an opportunity to use my giftings, even if it's outside of this church context, if I get an opportunity uh, to, to speak publicly on an issue, a gospel-related issue, that I'm, I'm going to take it. Okay? It might not work well for my schedule. It might be inconvenient. I might not necessarily want to do that. But I feel like if the Lord has gifted me with a gift, then what does he want me doing? Using that gift. And yes, primarily in the context of this church, but why not look to use that gifting in other areas as the Lord opens the door? And so I've, I've used that gifting in different areas. It's that same idea. I want to 
you know, whatever slice of, of the world, and all of us it's pretty small, but whatever slice of the world the Lord's given us to make a difference, I want to make the biggest difference I possibly can. With talents, with giftings, with work. Unfortunately, sin affects our work. So work is difficult now. We saw it. Work involves sweat and toil and thorns and thistles. Or if you prefer, it involves stress and overtime and uh, demanding bosses and boring meetings. And work is hard. Here's what one theologian said. And listen carefully to this. Don't expect life at work to be peachy. We all know the way too happy Christians who go to work thinking that since they love Jesus, everything is going to work out. It's not. You might miss your quota. You might lose a client. You might get fired. You might have tensions with your boss or your coworkers. These things don't mean that Jesus doesn't love you or that God isn't on your side. Or that God is punishing you for that one time you got drunk when you were a freshman. Rather, they are the inevitable result of living in a fallen world. Remember, thorns and thistles. Work is cursed. Work is affected by the fall. Work doesn't always work the way it should. So, have a massively God-sized view of the holiness of work. But be realistic about the fall, too. Jesus hasn't come back yet. You realize we're going to be working in heaven. We're going to be doing work there. <laughs> Lastly, I want to say this. Learn to commune with God while you work. Brother Lawrence wrote a book called the pra Practicing the Presence of God. Uh, he was a monk, and he was assigned in the monastery to kitchen duty, cleaning the dishes, cleaning the pots and pans, tedious chores of cooking, and he was at the constant bidding of his superiors, when one day he realized something. He could commune with God anywhere. He could wash dishes and guess what? Talk with the Lord. He could sweep the floor and enjoy fellowship with God. Even with the menial tasks, he could commune with the Lord right there. The key for Brother Lawrence was that he recognized that God was there in the kitchen as much as he was in the church. So, you know, if you can get to that point, of, of communion with the Lord in your work, it's a very sweet thing. That fights against that sacred versus secular mentality that tries to creep in sometimes. Okay? It's not just the sacred here on Sundays. The truth is, it's the sacred 24-7. Here in the church, but out there in your house, out there in your work. The Lord needs to be with you at your work, he already is. Go ahead and enjoy that fellowship with him. So we want to change our attitude towards work. I mean, the culture, it, it affects our thinking. And it becomes so commonplace 
that, that we never even think to question it. Work is bad, work is a necessary evil, work must be suffered through. No, we rightly attune to what God says. Work is from Him. Work is productive. God has work, and it's good. And guess what? We have work, and it's good. And through that, we want to glorify Him. Whatever the work that He's given us to do, whatever it might be, at home or in the field, in the factory, wherever it might be, we want to work in such a way that glorifies Him. His heart is for us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Amen? To become more and more like Him. And when we work, and we work uh, righteously, then we image God in that. We image Him. We reflect Him. And that's part of being what God has called us to be when it comes to our work. Going out, setting an example, being salt and light wherever he might place us. Every single day. The good days, the bad days. The rough days at work, the great days at work. But the work is from him. And so we glorify him through it in our approach, in our attitude, and in the way that we accomplish the work. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray for us as workers that we might be workers unto you that the ultimate goal is to bring you glory that we might be like that stonemason who's working to glorify you yes there's tasks involved some of them menial at times but change our minds and hearts on this subject to see work as something that pleases you that you've given us to do that's, it is from that original mandate given to Adam and Eve. Lord, thank you for the jobs that you've blessed this church with. Continue to bless the men and women in those positions. Give them favor in the sight of men and women at their jobs that they might um, have opportunities to glorify you more and more, that might have opportunities to speak of the wonders of who you are, Lord, that they might please and honor you through their approach to work, through their, what they produce from their work, for their attitude at their work, God, that they would be the best workers at their work because they want to glorify you. Thank you, Father, that we can do this not in our own strength, that we can toil and toil and toil, but without you, the labor is in vain. So keep us steadfast, our hearts set on you completely. And let us truly take you into the workplace with us. Let us enjoy the fellowship and communion we have there, like we have here. Continue to go before us, Lord. Continue to be glorified in our midst, both here in the church and out in the workplace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.